Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. The current series is Women and Money Matters. This is episode 3.6, No Taxation Without Representation, in Rome. The phrase, no taxation without representation, is famous as the creed of the American colonies before the Revolution. It's also famous for still being the current tagline on the license plates for Washington, D.C., but we're going to ignore all of that and focus on a much older use of the idea. Of course, most civilizations would have laughed at the concept. Nothing is certain except death and taxes, they say, and representation is definitely not certain. In world history, it's not even very likely. Taxes, on the other hand, you can count on. Many taxes throughout history have been paid in goods. Money wasn't always widely circulating. Taxes are at least as old as 3000 BCE, when the Egyptian pharaohs participated in the Shemsu Hor, or the Egyptian cattle count, where they traveled around the countryside, assessing the farmers' herds, and taking a cut. And if you haven't even got goods to involuntarily donate to your country, you do have 365 days in a year. Many societies may not have required goods, per se, but saw no reason why you can't break your back over the state's fields for at least some of those days. And it wasn't just men doing the backbreaking. Women have done plenty of labor. But we're going to ignore all of that, too, and talk about a time when money was widely circulating and taxes could be paid in actual money, though you could also pay in other things as well. Let me set the scene. The year is 42 BCE, and we are in Rome. If you remember episode 2.2 on Cleopatra, you may remember that Rome is theoretically a republic, but moving fast towards empire. Julius Caesar was emperor in all but name, but he's dead now, stabbed in the back on the Senate floor. Cleopatra has left the city and returned to her native Egypt. Empire is currently being controlled by the Second Triumvirate, by which we mean Mark Antony, Caesar's friend, Octavian, Caesar's adopted son and heir, and Lepidus, Caesar's military ally. You'll notice a significant absence of any Caesar opponents in the triumvirate, and that is by design. Brutus, Cassius, and their anti-Caesar faction is on the run. Not yet defeated, but on the run, which means civil war. Unfortunately for the second triumvirate, war is expensive, and the treasury is empty. Skint, zip, not a brass farthing. In order to deal with this, the triumvirate decide on proscription, which is a charming little governing technique whereby you look around for people you don't like, accuse them of treason, sentence them to death, and confiscate their property. All in the service of the Republic, naturally, so that's all right. The triumvirate said about it. Appian of Alexandria writes that, as soon as the triumvirs were by themselves, they joined in making a list of those who were to be put to death. They put on the list those whom they suspected because of their power and also their personal enemies, and they exchanged their own relatives and friends with each other for death, both then and later, for they made additions to the catalogue from time to time, in some cases on the ground of enmity, in others for a grudge merely, or because their victims were friends of their enemies or enemies of their friends or on account of their wealth, for the triumvirs needed a great deal of money to carry on the war. Appian has quite a bit to say about the general panic caused by this tactic, and all the lamentations, fleeing, and backstabbing it caused. But when it came to the point, there was a little problem even for the triumvirs, because though they had confiscated many lands and houses, there were, as Appian continues, not many buyers of their lands, since some were ashamed to add to the burden of the unfortunate. 
Others thought that such property would bring them bad luck, or that it would not be at all safe for them to be seen with gold and silver in their possession, or that, as they were not free from danger with their present holdings, it would be an additional risk to increase them. Only the boldest spirits came forward and purchased at the lowest prices, because they were the only buyers. Thus it came to pass that the triumvirs, who had hoped to realize a sufficient sum for their preparations for the war, were still short by two hundred million drachmas. Oh, the poor dears, it is hard when you don't have enough money for all your evil plots, isn't it? The triumvirs needed a new plan, and they found one. A new edict was issued that said the fourteen hundred richest women in Rome must submit evaluation of their property, and the triumvirs would inform them of how much of it Rome required for the war effort, patriotism, glory, and all that. And if any woman even so much as thought of turning in a false valuation, there would be a hefty fine, and that fine money would go to whatever slinking snitch had turned you in. Again, charming. Now these 1,400 women had opinions of their own on the subject of taxation. They followed the general script for women with a political grievance. Women didn't have much in the way of official channels of complaint, but they could and did appeal to the most influential women they could reach, namely the close family members of the triumvirs. They appealed to Octavian's sister and Antony's mother, both of whom heard them out. But Fulvia, wife of Antony, was apparently very rude. Appian fails to record exactly what she said, but given the way Fulvia is sometimes described elsewhere, it might have been something I wouldn't repeat on this podcast anyway. You get the general idea. Now, two things strike me about this plan. The first was that Octavian's sister and Antony's mother and wife were apparently thought to have enough influence over their menfolk to be able to help. So kudos to them for that. Men should listen to their wives, mothers, and sisters, though I take a dim view on being excluded from more official channels of influence. But the second thought that strikes me is that these three women do not appear to have been numbered among the 1,400 taxed women themselves. Why not? Surely they were also wealthy. Fulvia, in particular, is thought to have been an heiress of no small fortune. It sounds to me like there was a special exemption for close relatives of evil dictators. But did Fulvia's rudeness lead these 1,400 women to give up? Never! Instead, they marched their way to the forum and forced their way in past crowds of men and guards. They had also selected an orator for themselves, a woman named Hortensia, daughter of Quintus Hortensius, a famous orator himself. Hortensia said to the forum, As befitted women of our rank addressing a petition to you, we had recourse to the ladies of your households. But having been treated as did not befit us at the hands of Fulvia, we have been driven by her to the forum. You have already deprived us of our fathers, our sons, our husbands, and our brothers, whom you accused of having wronged you. If you take away our property also, you reduce us to a condition unbecoming our birth, our manners, our sex. If we have done you wrong, as you say our husbands have, proscribe us, as you do them. But if we women have not voted any of you public enemies, have not torn down your houses, destroyed your army, or led another one against you, if we have not hindered you in obtaining offices and honors, why do we share the penalty when we did not share the guilt? Good point, Hortensia, but here's the kicker. Why should we pay taxes when we have no part in the honors, the commands, the statecraft for which you contend against each other with such harmful results? 
Now, women were specifically excluded from the civilia officia, which is to say the duties required of male citizens, and most specifically the right to vote and the right to hold public office. Now, you can say boo to that, but do keep in mind that Rome was a very military-oriented society. Women, being thought inferior in so many ways, were not required to fight in the army, and traditionally they had not been asked to pay the tributum, which was the direct tax that paid the soldiers' wages. This was no trivial exemption when you realize how much of the Roman state's money went directly to the military effort. Now, it is true that the tributum had been abolished a hundred years earlier, on account of Rome having seized enough cash from its neighbors to the point where it didn't need to tax its own citizens. Obviously, times had changed, but even so, this is the general atmosphere of Republican Rome. Full male citizenship is an honor that carries with it both rights and responsibilities. Hortensia is arguing that women are denied the rights, so they should not have the responsibilities either. No right to vote, no responsibility to pay taxes. Hortensia continues to forestall one possible argument against her. Because this is a time of war, do you say? When have there not been wars? Again, good point, Hortensia. And when have taxes ever been imposed on women, who are exempted by their sex among all mankind? Our mothers did once rise superior to their sex, and made contributions when you were in danger of losing the whole empire and the city itself through the conflict with the Carthaginians. But then they contributed voluntarily, not from their landed property, their fields, their dowries, or their houses, without which life is not possible to free women, but only from their own jewelry, and even these not according to the fixed valuation, not under fear of informers or accusers, not by force and violence, but what they themselves were willing to give. What alarm is there now for the empire or the country? Let war with the Gauls or the Parthians come, and we shall not be inferior to our mothers in zeal for the common safety. But for civil wars may we never contribute, nor ever assist you against each other. We did not contribute to Caesar or to Pompey. Neither Marius nor Cinna imposed taxes upon us, nor did Sulla, who held despotic power in the state, do so, whereas you say that you are re-establishing the commonwealth. Now I listen to this, and I wonder why my government does not seem to know that women are exempt from taxes among all mankind, but I doubt that submitting Hortensia's speech as my tax return next year will get me out of anything. And indeed, it turns out that this was not quite true even in Republican Rome. Women had been exempt from the tributum back when it existed, but widows had been required at least at one point to pay the tax that went to the fodder of the army's horses. And that's just what I found out after a little digging, so it's not quite correct to say that Roman women had never paid taxes, though it may have been true in Hortensia's recent history. Something about the difference between patriotic wars and civil wars, though, seems to have struck home. The Romans were much affected by Hortensia's speech. Valerius Maximus, who records Hortensia as the last of only three women ever to argue before the public courts, says in her praise that Quintus Hortensius then revived in the female sex and breathed in the words of his daughter, which I am pretty sure was the highest compliment he could consider giving a woman, especially as compared to what he has to say about the second woman in his list, who abounded in impudence so much so that her name was given to all contentious women, and her death was to be noted as the day when a monster went out of the world. Yikes. Anyway, 
The triumvirs listening to this tirade were angry. And why? Because, again, according to Appian, they were angry that women should dare to hold a public meeting when the men were silent, that they should demand from magistrates the reasons for their acts. I mean, heaven forbid we should ask our government the reasons for what it does. The triumvirs ordered these women driven away, and that was tried, but the multitude outside was entirely on the side of the women. That kind of thing happens when you've been making up treason charges and executing innocent people. It's hard to keep up your approval ratings. And when the guards gave up trying to drive the women away, the triumvirs decided that they would, after all, hold off on the tax until they'd had time to think about it. Very thoughtful and considerate of them, I'm sure, especially when they were still being invaded by a horde of angry women. The next day, after careful, reasoned consideration, the triumvirs reduced the number of women who had to pay the tax from 1,400 to 400. To make the numbers come out right, they imposed an additional tax on men. Can you believe it worked? Or at least mostly worked? I mean, the men are being rounded up, murdered, and stolen from, all done without the slightest bit of remorse or compunction, but the women are the ones who manage to protest and mostly succeed. Bring out the grapes and the olives and the honey cakes. I'm sure there was a celebration at Girls' Night Out that night. Most unfortunately, Appian says not a further word about Hortensia, and I am pretty miffed about that because I have questions. Like, was she in the 400 who still had to pay? Did the triumvirs find a way to get back at her? Did she consider herself a success because of the 1,000 or a failure because of the 400? Does she have a book of further orations on other subjects? What kind of education did her famous orator father give her? What encouragement or discouragement? Silence, my friends. We have utter silence on all these questions. As far as I can tell, absolutely nothing more is known about Hortensia's past or future. Lack of sources is ever the problem in women's history, but at least we have this one speech from her, which is more than the number of her famous father's speeches, not one of which has survived. One thing that is immediately noticeable, though, is that these women were not actually arguing for representation. No taxation without representation didn't mean that Hortensia wanted to join the Senate. It meant that they didn't want to be taxed. Now, the way I was taught, when the American Founding Fathers used that catchy phrase, it was because they definitely wanted representation, equality, and all noble things. It certainly wasn't about anything as sordid as mere money. Actually, there are those who have argued that the American colonies would have been plenty happy without representation as long as they could have avoided the taxation. And maybe so. Maybe so. There were a lot of people involved, and they didn't all agree with each other. In next week's episode, though, we will move on to a group of women who also said no taxation without representation, and they definitely did mean, yes, we want representation. These women were Americans, and they paid taxes when they had no right to vote. And later on, after they had been given the right, some of them still could not vote because they could not pay the tax required. But that's next week. My major source for this week is Appian of Alexandria himself who wrote the only surviving account of Hortensia's gorgeous moment in the Roman Forum. It's quite short and fairly readable, so I recommend you come to the website, herhalfofhistory.com, to find the link. As always, thank you for liking, sharing, reviewing, commenting, and all that. I do read every single comment that comes in, and it does make a difference in more than one way. Thanks!
A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.